We're going to pick up in the tail end of the book of Hosea tonight. If you have your Bible, you're going to want to turn it to Hosea chapter 11. It's important tonight as we get started that we remember that there's kind of a simple pattern that Hosea rolls through over and over and over again of indictment, here are the crimes, judgment, here's the punishment, and then hope against all hope, here is the restoration of Israel. And so we actually found ourselves um, at one of the higher points of a judgment passage Um, And here in chapter 11, with Hosea's help, God reviews his relationship with Israel going all the way back to the beginning. Now, we we saw earlier in the book of Hosea um, a marriage metaphor for God's relationship with Israel. Like Hosea and his unfaithful wife, Gomer, Israel had been unfaithful to God. Here, the metaphor is a parental metaphor. Uh, where God is the father and Israel is his son. We pick up in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So he reaches all the way back to the beginning, to the Exodus, when Israel was merely slaves and God, out of his gracious and sovereign love, delivered them from Egypt. Out of Egypt, it says, I called my son. But notice verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. Right? The, the picture here is of a parent summoning a child, calling his name, and the child running in the opposite direction. And then it continues, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Okay? And so it begins with God's loving call, but... Israel's response is continuous, unending idolatry and unfaithfulness. And then we go back to the beginning again, verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them, notice the change in metaphors here, with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And so verse 4 jumps into the relationship between a farmer and his animal. But notice here it says that he led them with cords of uh, kindness uh, or humaneness is the idea of the word there. Okay, Even though they were God's servant, the way he treated them was with kindness and with love. Okay. How did he lead them? He didn't drag them along on a leash, right? They weren't on a choke collar. Instead, he had great care for this animal. He says, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. Um, In other words, he took great concern and gentleness in his involvement. And he says, and I bent down to them and I fed them. Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Okay, so they're not going to go back to Egypt, but they aren't going to stay in the land either. They're going to go, as we've seen over and over again, into captivity under the power of Assyria. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. 
My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Do you see how that kind of completes the circle? It begins when out of Egypt I call my son. And I call and I call and I call. And they run and they run and they run. Till they get to the point that if they call now, it's too late. Even if they call on me now, it's too late. He shall not raise them up at all. Verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? And so we get to this judgment. We get to this statement of no more help. And then it's almost as if God is overwhelmed with his own compassion. He's almost wrestling with himself. And remember, the imagery in Hosea is the most intimate of all the prophets. The comparative sentiment, if you will, of God for his people is like Hosea for his unfaithful wife. It's jealousy and longing. It's, it's compassion. And here you see, you know, uh, that proverb that we always say, you know, to our children when we discipline them, this hurts you more than it hurts me. We see this in a really tender spot. God says, how can I do this? How can I go through? How can I follow through with the punishment? He continues, how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? If those places aren't familiar to you, those are the sister cities of Sodom, right? It's not just Sodom and Gomorrah that are destroyed, but three other cities along with them, including Adma and Zeboim. And he says, how can I just bring about destruction and judgment? My heart, he says, recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Now that little word again there is important because God's not saying, change my mind. I'm not going to bring about judgment. What he's saying is after judgment, we're going to move in a different direction. Okay? It's similar to what happens in the flood. If you go back and you read Genesis chapter 6, we see that the earth is full of violence and wickedness and it grieved God, it says, that he had made man. And he says, because every intention of the thoughts of man's hearts are always evil continuously, I will bring judgment in the form of this flood. Okay, so the flood happens, the judgment happens, Noah builds a boat, his family is spared, and after the rain settles and the flood subsides, Noah's left there, and he offers a sacrifice to God, and in Genesis chapter 8, it might be chapter 9, God says, I will never again bring a flood upon the earth, for I know that the intentions of man's kinds of their heart are always evil, okay? And so God says, I'm not going to do that again, not because man has changed, but because he's stepping forward in this plan to set things right to bring about salvation it's the same here he says where this is headed is not a second and final judgment but restoration now i want you to notice verse 9 he says i will not execute my burning anger i will not again destroy ephraim and then look at his reason for i am god and not a man the holy one in your midst and i will not come in wrath do you see what his reason is here he says, the reason I'm not going to bring judgment again and again, the reason, if you will, love wins in God's heart is because he's God and not just a human being. And this is such a striking and interesting thing because we as human beings, 
We struggle with things like bitterness and resentment, right? When people upset us, when they wrong us, when they harm us seriously, it doesn't always go away just because they get what they deserve. I have a booklet on home uh, by Jim Wilson. It's a booklet on bitterness. And he's talking about this fact that bitterness can uh, not always be scrubbed away when justice is done. And he explains uh, that he one time went to visit a man in prison. And as they got to talking, this man kept returning to one relationship and talking about how much this man had mistreated him and harmed him. And it came up so many times. He said, wow, it seems like you really need to reconcile with this guy. And he said, well, I can't. And he said, well, why is that? And he said, I killed him. That's why I'm in here. Right? Here, he had brought about the full extent of his punishment that he could administer, but he was still angry. He was still bitter. He was still filled with resentment. Right? And here, God sets himself apart, and he says, I'm not like a human being. My justice, my character, my love is not so easily swayed by selfishness or or that magic tape recorder we have that replays things over and over and brings the past into the future. He sets himself apart as holy, meaning different. And so he's capable here of being just and merciful. Have you ever noticed as human beings, we kind of struggle to swing between them, and a lot of times our mercy cancels out justice, or our justice eradicates mercy? But eventually, God moves towards a place where justice and mercy meet in the cross of Jesus Christ, where punishment is fully expanded and mercy is fully expressed all in the same place. Then notice verse 10, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Remember where we came from? Out of Egypt I will call my son, and now he's going to yell real loud, and his kids are going to be real far away, but they will hear, and they will come shaking, okay? The point is that this judgment that they're going to go through in Assyria is not just punishment. It's not just what they deserve for their crimes. It's discipline. It has a lesson involved. He's teaching them something, and it will work. They're going to get it. And so next time he calls, they're not going to keep running, right? They're going to get it. He says, verse 11, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Okay. And at that point, this oracle kind of stops. We we need the next verse, and we'll get there in a second, but that really kind of jumps into the next segment. But I want you to notice just the cycle here, right? I called them out of Egypt. They ran. Because they did not return to me, they will not return to Egypt, but I will send them into Assyria. In Assyria, I will call them again, and out of grace and mercy, I will restore them because of my character and love, and then they will come. The reason why I'm walking you through that cycle is because I want to draw your attention back to verse 1 of chapter 11 again. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, clearly, when we read this in Hosea, that's talking about the Exodus. It's talking about history. But what's interesting is in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew quotes this passage, and he connects it with the life of Jesus. Okay, this is from, you know, the, the Christmas narrative 
This is from the stories of Jesus' birth. And so what happens is after Jesus is born and the wise men who have come to visit him return another way and not to Herod, Herod eventually finds out that he's been betrayed and so he puts to death all the children below the age of two in the area of Bethlehem. But being forewarned by an angel, Joseph and Mary, take Jesus and they head to Egypt. But listen to what Matthew says here, starting in chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and the mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod for many years. But listen to what he says here. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. So Matthew takes the passage we were reading, Hosea 11, and he says here, when Jesus lives in Egypt and then comes out of it, he fulfilled what Hosea wrote. And that's a bit of a head-scratcher. Because again, if you read Hosea, he's not making a future tense prophecy, I will call my son. Out of Egypt, I have, past tense, called my son. And in the text there, it's clearly referring to the beginning of Israel. So the question becomes, what is Matthew doing here? Is he just making a very simple point? It's like, oh, out of Egypt, out of Egypt. So maybe this was actually about Jesus. This is a very important question. It's an important question because we need to know if the way that the authors of the New Testament handled the Old Testament was good interpretation. And so is he just playing fast and loose here, just finding any evidence he can to show that Jesus was proclaimed by the scriptures? Now, he actually, in the first two chapters, quotes the Old Testament five times and applies it to Jesus's life. But I would say of the five, this is the one that's the most difficult. There's effectively two options, and I'm good with both of them. I just want to lay them out to you, okay? One is the simplest. As we saw in Hosea 11 in its context, Israel begins in Egypt, and they end in Assyria, but then there's another beginning, right? There's a restoration that's going to happen. It's going to start again. God is going to, as we saw, roar like a lion and call again. It may be that that in and of itself is what's significant to Matthew. He goes, all right, even in Hosea's words, he's looking forward to a coming one. And we've seen passages earlier in the book that are clearly talking about a Messiah, the coming king, the son of David, okay? And so maybe he's just reading the book as a whole, and he's saying it's happening again. Just as God did a work through the first exodus, now the true exodus is going to happen, and it happens in the same way. As God calls his son out of Egypt and brings him into the land, okay? It's almost as if he sees a historic ripple in the pond of time. And he says, that makes sense. That's what you would expect. And there's other reasons why I would suggest to you that this is an okay way to read what Matthew is doing. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, when we get to the story of the transfiguration where Jesus goes up a mountain with three of his disciples and suddenly they look and he's transformed in their sight, and he's shining as bright as a light, and he's in clothes whiter than they've ever seen, and he's speaking with Moses and Elijah. Luke tells us that they were talking about Jesus's, and in your English translation, it probably says departure. 
okay? In other words, these three are having this amazing conversation about Jesus' impending death, his crucifixion. But the word there in the Greek of the Gospel of Luke is they were talking about his exodus. It's a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word for the second book of the Old Testament. Okay? The departure he's talking about is not just any departure, it's a new exodus. Okay? And so that Matthew would have had a similar understanding makes a lot of sense. There is a second way to do this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I just find it to be kind of interesting. And it has to do with recognizing the fact that the language of Hosea, quote, out of Egypt I called my son, may not begin with Hosea at all. What if instead of this just being Matthew quoting Hosea, it's actually Matthew quoting Hosea quoting the book of Numbers? That changes the game a little bit. And we've seen this before, and we'll see it a lot more tonight. Hosea loves the Old Testament. He's familiar with Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and First and Second Samuel. He touches all these places. What happens in the book of Numbers is a man named Balaam is hired by Balak, one of the enemies of Israel, to stand on a mountain and publicly curse them. Not just to say bad things about them publicly, but to call upon them bad consequences. And he tries to, and he can't. Every time he opens his mouth, he just speaks of how great Israel is and how amazing their destiny will be. And it goes on a couple of times, but it culminates in a messianic prophecy. It culminates in a place where where Balaam says, I see a long way off a star coming out of David and a scepter out of Judah that will rule the nations. So that's in his fourth oracle, but in his third one, we find this exact sentence. Out of Egypt I will call him. But in Balaam's prophecy, that's not past tense. It's not out of Egypt I have called him. It's I will call him. And so maybe there's a deeper Bible study, if you will, going on in Matthew's mind, and he's tracing the line here. But either of those uh, ways have one thing in common, okay, which is recognizing the fresh beginning, the restoration, the new covenant, if you will, okay, that begins in Jesus and is also the fulfillment of the old, okay. And so I would suggest to you that, and this is true of all the times the New Testament uses the Old Testament, they're not being fast and loose with interpretation. They're actually amazingly good Bible students. And the reason why it strikes us oftentimes as being fast and loose is because we don't know our Bibles. We don't read them like the authors intended because we're just not as familiar with the Old Testament. All right, let's continue on. Chapter 11, verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One of Israel. Okay, so we start a new section here, and the, uh, the condemnation of Israel is lies and deceit. That's important, because this word for deceit is very similar to the word for Jacob. Okay. Remember back in Genesis, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they're twins. And at first, Esau is born. He's the older brother. But Jacob actually follows, holding on to his brother's heel. And so they name him literally the catcher of the heel. That's what Jacob means, the one who holds the heel. Okay. 
But the idea, the implication of that word is not just, you know, a wrestling move, but a character flaw. The heel catcher is the one who, like, you know, your little brother when you're walking down the hall at night, reaches out and grabs your leg, right? Deceptively trips you up. And if you read the rest of Jacob's life, it's a perfect name. He is a schemer. He is a used car salesman, okay? He is quite the character. And as we'll see, that's going to be major to what Hosea is about to say. But he doesn't pull back the curtain. First, he just gives the accusation, and he says the problem with Israel, specifically the northern tribes, is that they're deceitful. And he says at this point, Judah is still faithful. But notice chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long, which is just a statement of foolishness. The idea of uh, feeding on the wind is chasing the wind, right? We still use that saying sometimes to talk about futile endeavors. It says, he pursues the east wind all day long, and then notice, they multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt, okay? So crime, deception, evidence. They make an agreement with one nation, and then they do side deals quietly behind with Egypt, okay? And to be honest, God's not thrilled about either of those deals. They're not supposed to be trusting in other nations at all, but even there, they're not wholly trusting in one nation or another. They're always working on their angle, right? And then notice verse 2, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. So we read in the last verse of the last chapter, Judah's okay, and here we go, well, not really. And this is one of the tensions of the book of Hosea. By the time that Hosea dies, Judah's not in a good boat either. Okay? And so there's a recognition here of a transition coming from Judah. They are present tense faithful, but they will not be found future tense faithful. Okay? But notice here, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. And there's one more thing we need to nail down to help us understand what's going on here, and it's really simple. Like some other characters in the Bible, Jacob has two names. His birth name is Jacob. But there comes a point in his life where after he's kind of made a mess of things, God renames him. And he changes him from being Jacob, the heel catcher, the wrestler, to Israel, the one who is governed by God. Okay? Israel, the one who wrestled with God and prevailed, is, is where it said that his name is. Here's what Hosea is going to do in the following verses. Obviously, Israel the nation gets their name from Israel the patriarch. But they're behaving more like Jacob, right? And so they're acting like their namesake, but not the transformed by God new name. Not the made fresh established by God, helped by God, fixed, new and improved version Israel, but just plain old Jacob, okay? If you will, what he's suggesting here is a national deconversion. Like I said, Jacob's life is a mess, but at some point he finally surrenders to God, okay? In fact, that's the story he points to. Notice what he says here, in the womb he took his brother by the heel And in his manhood, he strove with God. That's the two names, right? In the womb, he grabbed the heel, Jacob. 
In his manhood, he strove with God, Israel. Here's what happens if you don't remember. So Jacob grabs his brother's heel in the womb and then talks him out of his birthright in their young adult years and then under the influence of his parents steals away his father's blessing. His father is blind and through trickery he gets the blessing that was bound for his brother. And Esau is mad. And so Esau says, you know what? Tomorrow I'm just going to kill you. This is over. And so Jacob packs a bag and runs away. Okay? And he goes all the way out of the promised land, the land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, into the land of Aram. And there he meets a man named Laban. And he ends up working with Laban. And to be honest, Laban is also a pretty deceitful guy. And we have this battle of uh, deceit, basically, between the two of them. And it's kind of a total mess. But eventually... Jacob walks out of there with this big family, a lot of property, and comes back into the promised land. And here is the first thing he hears as he crosses back into the land of Canaan. A messenger comes and says, hey, I was running ahead to check out things, and I saw your brother Esau. He heard you were coming, and he's coming this way with 400 men. Okay? The last conversation Jacob had with Esau was a death sentence. Now he's here with 400 other people. Okay, that sounds like reinforcements, right? And so Jacob prays, and this is what he prays. He says, God, you made me all that I am. God, you made me amazing promises. God, you promised to protect me, and here I am against my brother, and he wants to take my life. Save me. It's an amazing prayer. But as soon as he says amen, Jacob goes, all right, here's how I'm going to save myself. And he comes up with this plan to bribe his brother, and he sends wave after wave of gifts to try and win over his brother. So he sends these gifts. And then in the middle of the night, he separates himself from the family so that they're all safely on the other side of the river and only he alone is on the Esau side of the river. And suddenly he's jumped in the dark by a man, right? And if you're reading that story and you don't know it, you assume it's Esau. Here it is, the battle you've been expecting, but it's not. It's an angel of the Lord. In fact, it's such a significant angel of the Lord. Jacob goes at the end of it, did I just wrestle with God himself, right? It's a quite crazy thing. But in the midst of it, here's what happens. Jacob loses that fight, and he loses badly. As we'll see in a second, he's weeping, holding on to the ankle of this angel and saying, please don't leave until you bless me. And one of the reasons is because halfway through the fight, the angel touches the socket of Jacob's hip and puts it out of joint, and he limps for the rest of his life. Okay? The angel lames Jacob. Now that's really important, because tomorrow he's going to stand before his brother and he's not going to be able to run. He had prayed, God save me, and God says, let me help you, let me save you, okay? And so he walks with a limp the rest of his life, and he's also given a new name. Now you will be the one who trusts Israel for your protection. Now you will be Israel who trusts God for your protection. Now you will be the one who relies on me and leans on me and trusts in me, okay? And in that way, you will have victory. You will prevail, okay? That's the whole thing that Hosea is dealing with here. And the question is, Israel, which of these patriarchs, the old man, Jacob, or the new man, Israel, are you going to follow suit in? And so he says here, verse 4, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Okay, one last thing. Jacob goes to Bethel twice in his life. 
The first time is when he first leaves Esau, and that's where we get the Jacob's ladder with the angels ascending and descending, and he has this vision, and he calls the place Bethel, the house of God, because he feels like he's, you know, slept on God's front porch, and all of this business is going into heaven right next to him, okay? But here I would suggest that Hosea is not referring to that. He's referring to the next thing after Jacob meets with Esau when he settles in Bethel, buries all of the idols that his family has been carrying, and rededicates his life to God. And at that place, in Genesis chapter 35, God reiterates, you are Israel. He reconfirms the name, okay? And so the idea here is that at Bethel he met God, and there God spoke what to him? His name. You are new. You are not what you were. Right? It's very similar to the way the New Testament talks about us as Christians. We are no longer to live according to the old man, but in the newness of life available in the new man in Christ. Okay? That's the idea here. Verse 5, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. You know one of the things that's interesting about Jacob's name? Most of the names of the Old Testament characters have God's name somewhere in there, okay? Israel is a good example. El is one of the names for God. Joshua is, uh, is Yahshua, okay, from Yahweh. Jacob, not at all. He's just the heel catcher. But he becomes Israel, right? His character is rooted in God's character. His name is rooted in God's name. And that's what Israel needs right now. They need to remember the name of God, the God of armies. Here they are scheming with other nations for their protections, and they're like, who's the general of heaven? You know his name. You have his number, right? Why call anyone else? Verse 6, so you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. I don't want to spend too much more time here, but that is the media sentence in this whole thing. How is it that Israel's going to repent? Let me read it again. So you, by the help of your God, return. God wasn't waiting for Jacob to get his life straight and figure it out. He was waiting for Jacob to ask. And as soon as he asked for help, God was there, immediately, ready to provide for him. And that's Israel's problem. But the way that they're going to come about returning is with help. Jesus talks about salvation in terms of a lost sheep, right? It says that Jesus is like a shepherd who leaves the 99 who are safe to go after the one who is lost. And Luke tells us in Luke 15 that when he finds the one who is lost, he lays it upon his shoulders and he carries it home. Okay. A lot of times we talk about repentance or salvation as going back to God, and that's right. Even Jesus' next parable, the parable of the prodigal son, the son wakes up in a faraway land and says, I'm going to go back home. But it's more appropriate to recognize that underlying that is God being the one who carries us. Okay? And so God has never called Israel to something they cannot do. He's called them to something they cannot do alone. But that's just another way of saying, be Israel. Follow suit with your namesake. By the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Verse 7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. 
Okay, so deceit was a kind of a general thing. Now here's what deceit looks like, not at the national level with other nations, but in the personal level of your average Israelite. It looks like false balances. It looks like bad pricing. It looks like marketing that takes advantage of other people. It says here, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. Okay. This is two problems here. One is, everything Israel has, they have been given. And that's something, by the way, that Jacob gets. Back in that prayer that I told you about in Genesis 32, he says, God, when I walked into the land of Aram, I just had a staff. That was my entire property. He's like, but look, now I've become two camps of people and animals. He says, you have given me this. Israel's forgotten that. They say, these are the things we made for ourselves. These are the things we earned. And then more importantly, how have they earned them? On the backs of other people. By taking advantage of other people. Their wealth is not honestly earned. It is stolen. Okay. He says, I found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. And then the worst you know, the cherry on top of their bad behavior is they boast about their wealth and go, clearly, we are righteous. Look at everything we have. We know the right way to live, but it's all a sham. Verse 9, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. The Feast of Tabernacles is named for the fact that all Israelites were to build a tabernacle, a tent, and live outside during the feast to remember what it was like to be in the wilderness. And what he says here is, I'm going to take you out of your mansions, and you're going back to tents, okay? But it's not going to be temporary this time. Basically, he says, your wealth is over, okay? You're going to be sold into slavery in Assyria. You're going to have nothing. Verse 10, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there's iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of a field. Basically says, I've been telling you this for years. I've been warning you about where this is headed. Verse 12, Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. Okay, we talked about this story, right? When he leaves Esau, he goes to the house of Laban, And he serves on staff with Laban's shepherding operation. And that's how he's basically paid in women. He's given his wife, first Leah, uh, and then Rachel. Okay. But basically here, what does Jacob learn in the wilderness? He learns what a shepherd is. He learns how to care for animals. And actually, he's really good at it. Okay. Notice the next verse. By a prophet... The Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. In other words, Moses was the shepherd. And the prophets that followed him that he just referenced, they were also shepherds. And he says, you of all people, Israel, know about shepherds. Your founding father, this is what he learned in the land of Aram, and now you reject my care and my protection and my leadership? Effectively, God criticizes Israel here for a sheep uprising, for a revolt against their good shepherd. Okay. 
Verse 14, Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so the Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Jacob receives mercy. His mess of a life, forgiven and scrubbed out, cleansed by God. But Ephraim won't cry out. Ephraim won't ask for help. Ephraim doesn't think there's anything wrong. Jesus, speaking to a church in the book of Revelation, says, I know what you say of yourself. You say that you are wealthy and that you see and that you are clothed and have need of nothing. And he says, but you were wrong. He says, you were blind and you were poor and you were naked and need all things. And then he says this. He says, if only you would come to me, I would give you all you need. That's the state of Israel here. They think everything's fine, but everything is not fine. And because of that, judgment is inescapable. Chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images. This is just about the last oracle in the book of Hosea. Chapter 14 kind of stands apart. It's also probably one of the later ones given in Israel's history, and we'll see why that's the case right now. But what I want you to think of as we're reading about this is right now, judgment is starting to fall. Right now, stuff just got real. It just hit the fan, okay? And at this point, even though they're trembling, even though they're shaking, even though Hosea's words are coming to pass in front of their eyes, what are they doing? Now they sin, verse 2, more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. In other words, when the rubber meets the road, when it really comes to the grind, they double down on their idolatry. And the same gods that, you know, they've been worshiping that have led them into judgment, now they worship more and more and cry to them to save them, okay? It is said of them, halfway through verse 2, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves, okay? The Hebrew there is more likely a little bit less intense there. It's not that they're offering human sacrifice. It's the humans who offer sacrifice kiss calves, Okay? So what does it look like? They're killing a whole bunch of animals trying to get these gods to save them, and they're also paying homage by kissing these little cow idols. Okay? But remember, these are all made by man. They're built by a craftsman. It's foolishness. Okay? A friend of mine told a story once about how he was washing a car, and he had two of those car washing gloves on. And he was standing up on a milk crate to get the top of his car, and he felt it start to slip out from under him. And as he started to fall, his thought process said, I need to lift my hands or I'll get gravel on the, on the washcloths and then I won't be able to wash the car. Despite the fact that he needed his hands to save his face from hitting the pavement, right? It's nonsense. It's a crazy way to think. It's sleep logic. Have you ever done that when you're driving too late at night and your brain actually tells you, you can close your eyes for a few minutes. It's fine. Just, just don't do it for very long. Everything will be fine, right? There's nothing good in that advice. That's what's going on here. Their way doesn't make sense. And so because of that, verse 3, they shall be like the morning mist 
or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like the smoke from a window. What do those four things have in common? They just don't exist very long, right? He just says it's about to be over. It's about to be like in the magic show where there's a puff of smoke and then it dissipates and it's gone, okay? But I, verse 4, am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Okay, he goes back to the beginning and he says, when I saved you, rule number one, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with your heart, soul, and all your might. Right? That's what it was supposed to be. It was an exclusive relationship, and that's the God who saved them. And he says, there is no other Savior. There is no other God that you can deliver you, deliver you. and this is, you know, elementary for Israel. This is where it began. Verse 5, it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Remember how God takes care of the people in the wilderness with manna from heaven and water from rocks where every meal is a miracle? He says, but now you're in the land and you're flourishing that I've given you and you've forgotten. He says, when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled up and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard who will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open which, of course, is just a graphic way of talking about impending judgment. Verse 9, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me. And then notice this, who are they against? Against your helper. Right? There's a foolishness to sin, and not just because you're opposing an all-powerful God who made you and can unmake you, who gave you life and can take your life, but also because you're opposing the one who made you because he loves you, and the one who's there to be in relationship with you. There's a madness to sin. Verse 10, where now is your king to save you in all your cities? That's probably the timestamp. okay? I told you that this is probably near the end of uh, Israel proper, the end of Samaria. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 4, the final king of Israel, Hosea, finally ticks off the king of Assyria, and he goes, that's it, and he takes him off his throne and takes him to Assyria and throws him in prison, okay? Right after that, the king of Assyria comes back, and he starts a three-year-long siege of the city of Samaria. It is the beginning of the end, and so when Hosea here says, where is your king to save you? It's somewhere in that three-year period. That's why they're scrambling like mad to try and get out from under the impending judgment, he says, where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? And then notice verse 11, I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. All the way back in the beginning, in the days of the judges, in the days of Samuel, the people of Israel as a whole, Judah included, come and they say, give us a king like the other nations. And Samuel's upset. He goes, what am I? I'm I've spent my whole life serving and leading you, and you want a king now? And they go, well, to be honest, you're almost dead, and your sons are worthless. But still, they want a king like the other nations, and God speaks to Samuel, and he says, don't be upset. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. There's something about their desire that has nothing to do with God's plans, even though God has plans for a king. But they want a king like the other nations. 
They want a savior here on earth, one that they can bow down to and see on the throne, one that can lead them in battle, not through miraculous, not through faith and trust and all of those scary things, but with big muscles, right? And so God gives them Saul. In his wrath, he gives them Saul, and Saul is not a great king, right? Before he can give them the gift of David, he weans them off of a king like the other nations, and they give him a king like they always wanted, okay? But it says here that I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. And especially for the northern tribes, this speaks not just of Saul, but of every king who's ever sat on the throne of the northern tribes of Israel, beginning with Jeroboam. 21 kings, all of them, according to First and Second Kings, do evil in the sight of the Lord, and so God removes them. Okay. Constantly, they're appointing another person, and instead of returning nationally in repentance to God, they're like, let's just try another political solution. This king failed us, how about this king? And effectively, he says here, probably in a way that's less cynical than this is going to come off, where's your king now? Okay. Verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Okay. Now is the time for them to repent. He says, but this is like nine months of labor. The baby's supposed to come, and the baby, you know, with every limb is just holding its place in the womb and refusing to. You know what that is? It's a death sentence, right? It's, it's be born or die. In fact, take the mother with you is what happens when, when childhood goes badly. That's why he's labeled here an unwise son. The one thing they need to do now is be born. Enter into life. But they, they refuse. Verse 14, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Okay, as earlier we saw God saying, my compassion overwhelms me, how can I give you up? Here he says, when you're being this stubborn, when you refuse to repent, am I going to withhold judgment? Am I just going to go, well, I tried, right? He says here, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Will I save them from death if they won't cry out to me? If they're refusing my help? He says here, O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? And here, clearly, Hosea is calling on judgment. He's saying, come on in, plagues. Place of the dead, do your worst. Because that's apparently what Israel wants. But what's interesting is, this is another passage that's quoted in the New Testament. Did it sound familiar to you? The form's a little bit different in 1 Corinthians 15, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about Jesus and the resurrection. The fact that Jesus died and then three days later was raised to life and will never die again. And Paul goes, and that's not just true of you, but, or true of him, but everyone who trusts in Jesus will also have this type of resurrection, eternal life. And so he says, basically, Jesus is going to be enthroned over all things, not just on earth, but the big enemies of human beings too, including death itself. He will triumph over death. And then he quotes here, and this is what he says. 
he exclaims. He almost praises and he says, when Jesus triumphs over death, oh death, where is your string? Or where is your sting? Okay. Oh Sheol, where is your victory? But that's kind of a surprising place because here it's a statement of judgment. Paul is using it ironically. He says something Jesus did is so significant that now those words become mocking. It's no longer an invitation of impending judgment. It's, is that the best you can do? Where's your sting, death? Sheol, I thought you were going to have the victory. We all finish in the same finish line as human beings in a grave. But where's that victory now? That's a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's a contrast between what Israel is going through and the restoration that follows judgment. That's a contrast between the law, which leads to death, and the spirit, which leads to life. And so Paul can pull this kind of uh, hermeneutical jujitsu because the story has changed. And that's what's so amazing to Paul. It's as if he's saying, no longer are the words of Hosea true because God has overcome death in Jesus. Verse 15, though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come rising up from the wilderness and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. And that's kind of the pinnacle of Hosea's statements of judgment. But I want you to remember that this is in the 11th hour. And these things do come to pass because that's the type of army Assyria runs. And so here's the pinnacle of judgment, but that's where judgment ends in the book of Hosea. And in his closing chapter, there's a pivot. And we have a question here. The question is, what we read in chapter 14, is that the same return we've been learning about? Like, the clock hasn't run out yet, it's not too late to turn around? Or is this a post-judgment return? And I would suggest to you, considering the history of Israel and the fact that Hosea is probably composed after, as a document, after the destruction, chapter 14 is a, now what? Right? It's, a, it's an appendix that goes, although it's too late, it's not too late. Chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with your words and return to the Lord and say to him. Right? Hosea provides a script. He says, this is what return looks like. And look at what it is. Take away all iniquity, accept what is, uh, is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lip, lips. In other words, forgive us and we will worship you. Verse 3, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. Okay? In other words, here Israel abandons all of their false hopes. Why? Because as we saw in chapter 13, they all fail. Okay? And so they go, that's all right. We're not going to trust in these things anymore. We have nothing left. We're going to come to you. I would suggest to you, this is the national version of Jacob's hip. 
right? Here they're robbed of the ability to trust in anything else because everything else has failed them. And through that, God weans them off their idolatry and their unfaithfulness, and they finally come home. Going all the way back to the beginning of the book, Hosea takes a wife. That wife is unfaithful, bears to him at least two children who are not his, right? And so he names them that. No pity and not my child. And then he takes her to divorce court and he demands, either you leave your lovers behind and you stay with me and the kids or this relationship is over and she chooses to walk away. But the story doesn't end there. The story ends when Hosea comes and finds her now in sexual slavery, owned by a master, and he buys her back from his own money and brings her back to the home and he says, you belong to me now, we're going to restore this marriage. That's this. This is the restoration after the devastation. This is Israel coming to the place where they get everything they ever wanted and it kills them. And then God raising them back to life. This is Jacob limping for the rest of his days, but knowing God and trusting him. He finishes here. He says, And you, the orphans, find mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. You see here how he's reaching into all of these different plant metaphors. And so it's, it smells beautiful and it's big and it's strong and it's, it looks beautiful like a lily, right? Basically, it's, it's pictures of abundance and fruitfulness. Verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. He says, I'm not like the other gods. Call to me and I will hear you. I will respond. He says, I'm like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. In other words, I'm like a tree that's always green, always life-giving, always healthy. And then he says, that's where all of your goodness comes from. Jesus tells us a similar thing as Christians in John 15. He says, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Abide in me, and you will bear fruit. Jesus is not just our example of how to live. He is our life source. And when we rest in who he is, that's when life becomes fruitful. Christianity is not us trying to do the right thing. It's surrendering to God, producing the right thing in us. And that's similar to the picture we get here. Jesus is like an evergreen cypress. Always enough life for what you need. Always enough power for what you need. Sufficient for us. Abide in me and you will bear fruit, Jesus says. There the oracles finish, and then there's kind of a closing epigraph at the end of the book. And it's not an oracle. Look at it, verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, 
and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Why is this here at the end of the book? Do you see what it does? It tells us that this is not just a record of history, nor is it an artifact of God trying to reach a people who didn't listen. It's a value to us today. This is a note to the readers that says, I'm telling you these things not just about Israel of the seventh century, but about you right now. And he says there's two ways to read this book. One is to read it, to know these things, to discern them, to be wise, and to recognize that the right thing to do is to walk with God, to walk in his ways. He says, but transgressors will take this and stumble in them. And that's a hard truth because you read this and on a good day you go, it's all so clear. Why would you make the mistakes that Israel makes? But when Israel received these prophecies, they said, madness, ridiculous, everything's fine, right? In fact, we've probably had that occurrence, right? I know you have with your parents. You've probably had it with the Lord as well, where you read what he is asking you to do and because of the place you're in, you read it in full rebellion mode. You read it in anger. You read it as if God is demanding and demeaning, as if you're a slave and he has his foot on the back of your neck. And we know that that's how Hosea's wife felt, right? She saw her marriage as a prison. There's two ways to read these things. And what I would suggest to you is when you catch yourself wrestling with the judgment of this book or wrestling with, with these types of things, that you've got to keep reading until you get it. You've got to keep reading until the beauty of who God is sinks in. And so here you have a God who is always good, and that is impetus, impetus to obedience. And then you have a God who is tremendously patient, and that is impetus to obedience. And then you have a God who is ready to return and restore and will even help you set things right. And that points in that way. And then you have the God who, even when he brings discipline, provides a way back to restoration. Why wouldn't we honor and love and worship and obey a God like that? That's Hosea's heart. It's not just to remind us of the places where we've fallen. It's not just to point out the things we should be doing it's to show us the God who calls us, who has always called us, and who is ever ready, like the Father in Jesus' parable, looking out the window, waiting for our return to embrace us, to clothe us and all of his household, to kill the fatted calf, for my son was dead and he is now alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you, Lord, that it wasn't just the word of the Lord through the prophet Hosea to the people in Samaria, but it is your word to us today. I pray that we would read it as wise and discerning, that we would see ourself in its pages, Lord, uh, as a rebellious son, as an unfaithful wife. But more importantly, I pray that we would see you as a loving father, as a heartbroken husband. And that we would do the one thing that Hosea calls us to do throughout. And that we would do it every moment of every day that we would return to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.